where we really are trapped in a modern mode of sexuality, where we think sexuality came out of science and it's all about taxonomy and classification and ideology. Are you or aren't you? Where did it come from? Are you ever going to solve that problem and be allowed to live? And then transgender Marxism comes in and is like, yeah, fuck all that shit. Did you know we're also exploited and we could just do this like other analysis? This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Thank you so much, everybody, for joining. Sorry, we're running a tiny bit um, behind, as this um, horrible meme that I saw yesterday says, as gay people, we get to choose when we show up to things. Um, And uh, such is the case. So I'm um, incredibly honored to be joined by... um, Jules Gill Peterson and Jules Gleason um, to talk about um, a subject that is um, cherished by the three of us, which is um, history and gay history and being gay for history. Um, I feel like I should uh, cite um, my friend Kay Gabriel, who initially formulated it um, in a talk that I did with her about. Um, this book, Sexual Gemini, uh, a couple months back. Um, but yeah, I, I think we were basically um, imagining that we would have just a kind of informal chat, um, beginning with a couple uh, minutes of remarks that each of us have um, begun to uh, prepare ahead of time um, about this question, about how do you think about the relationship um, to history as sort of queer, trans, or gay people, um, specifically in the context of this like um, quite uh, marked sort of moral panic um, that like intensifies the meaning of history in, in complicated ways. Um, and I think we're going to just kind of share the beginnings of our our, our thoughts, um, sort of one after the other, um, and then have a conversation between the three of us and then open it up to questions from the audience. Um, and I, uh, I think we suggested that, um, Jules Gill Peterson, if you want to go first, should, um, feel free to introduce yourself with all of your, um, 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 titles and everything. Um, and then Jules, you can um, follow up and then I'll, I guess, um, share some thinking and, 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 uh, sort of in the direction of, uh, questions, I guess, that we can all kind of, um, chat about afterwards. So. Sounds good. Thank you. Thank you, Max. Um, thanks for convening us and, uh, thank you for, for bringing the tool, the two Jules's together. Uh, it's a, it's a total, I was just saying before we went live that it relieves the burden of having to be a whole entire Jules. So thank you, Jules, for being another Jules. Um, I feel like together, you know, 
it seems like uh, that distributed labor makes uh, being a jewels a little bit easier in the world. <laughs> so I wanted to to offer something kind of like leading out of this question about being gay for history in a moment of moral panic um, and in sort of moral sex panics and the sort of great trans panic um, that we're living through right now. So I wrote it up just because, I don't know, I'm sharper when I'm reading what I wrote. Um, so let me let me offer this little meditation on being gay for history um, or or alternatively maybe five points for a materialist trans feminism. So I think one of the particularly successful strategies of today's moral panics amount to something like the advantage of libidinal warfare, calling the bluff of liberalism and daring it to admit that the entire edifice of reason is a paranoid prison outside of which the panic moralist laughs in a performance of angry pleasure, spreading disinformation and reveling in the enjoyment of a promiscuous unreason. There's an easy version of this to pin on the anemic middle of this country, in this case, the United States, but it, but it might apply well to the UK as well. The kind of liberal allies who, as I frequently complain to friends in only half junk joking terms, will surely be held up at a sex in the city style brunch while we are being locked up. Virtue signaling about how they had a cousin who dated one of those trans people in college for a semester or something. I think the harder lesson for the left is not to moralize in our reaction to the panic moralist who, let's not forget, is not merely making money from books with patently absurd subtitles like the transgender craze seducing our daughters or when ideology meets reality. The professional trans panicker is also carrying on what she has libidinally metabolized as a civilizational mandate for white women as gatekeepers of the order of things. The great empire of white womanhood has been at it through sentimental and moral genres since at least the 19th century. She and her friends goad us on because they hope we will respond to their cheap moralism with the weakness of debunking and fact-checking or dunking on their inconsistencies with quote tweets, lamenting their hypocrisies and fallacies, and all the while pretending that we could outmaneuver rather than and renew the resolve of their libidinal politics. And so we witness time after time how the liberalism inside each of us bows easily to the fascism that is its neighbor by making of reason a moral principle for goodness, where goodness turns out to be a fantasy that only we are clinging to, not a description of the terms of engagement with our oppressors. When they go low, we go high, or something equally haughty in that it imagines reason as transcendentally capable of denuding a sex panic. There's nothing to denude. That's our first mistake. The second is to think that we need a new moralism, which is to say some sort of justification to defend ourselves at all besides the fact that we are flesh and blood. 
when TERFs and their fascist allies openly employ a blood libel, that transition is funded by a cabal of Jewish billionaires, or ally with the bought and paid for legislators to ban our children from going to school or the doctor, or call trans women pedophiles with impunity, or send us death and rape threats before accusing us of doing the same, or invent an entire incident at a Los Angeles area spa in order to get today's brown shirts out into the streets and invite the police to come beat and shoot trans protesters at point blank range with rubber bullets. Well, none of these actions need to be revealed to the public in the light of paranoid reason. There is no truth hiding behind them to ferret out. These are not ideological ruses, some sort of sideshow or distraction. This is the main stage of history. And the social media age sophistry that is disinformation is not window dressing to a hidden real politics. There is no sudden culture war targeting trans girls, as the New York Times put it so poorly a few months ago. To violently eject trans women and girls from the public sphere, the clinic, school, and consequently the, the formal labor market is a material issue, not a cultural one. The over 100 anti-trans bills tabled in U.S. state legislators this year were not smoke and mirrors to distract from anti-Black voting legislation. They were their open collaborator and partner in maintaining a republic founded on codified white supremacy in the form of private property. The preventable mass death of hundreds of thousands at the hands of the neoliberal state, which has now withdrawn what meager benefits it ponied up to force people back to work for unlivable wages, is part of the same political operation. We don't need an elitist, ethnocentric, and Western fantasy of enlightened reason to save us from this racist, transphobic flavor of corporate authoritarianism fueled by moral sex panics. It's all rather evident and before our eyes. The question is, I think, rather, what do we want or what do we desire to do about it? What I'm getting at is that we, by which I mean sort of vaguely on the left or in queer and trans and anti-racist struggle, need our libidinal investments too. Only liberalism self-limiting ascetic ideal asks that we renounce feeling for reason to preserve our stubborn pride in the face of so much lost ground. Those investments are something like what I think we're calling here today being gay for history. In short, I think we're only as helpless as we declare ourselves to be in advance. So let me offer very quickly a preliminary sketch of an alternative, non-moralistic, I hope, and maybe even historical materialist approach to transfeminism, something that I think I'm working on in a really short little book that I started scribbling out of anger um, that I'm calling A Brief History of Transfemininity. So think of these five points as an alternative to trying to prove TERFs wrong and thereby reclaim feminism and womanhood as if that was ever our goal. Think of this, in other words, as moving away from the idea that transfeminism only means trans-inclusive regular feminism, as if the trick is merely to excise the error of the TERF to restore the goodness of the original term instead of transforming and radicalizing its vision from a trans-feminine standpoint. The shift would go something like this. And I love offering five points because, wow, that's so practical. Um, and I'm a, I'm a Capricorn son with a Virgo mean, so this is about to feel really good for me. Okay, point one. 
The ends of feminism are not formal and representational. Therefore, correctly defining womanhood to include trans women is not its aim. Two, trans femininity is not a crisis of definition, nor valuable insofar as it expresses an internal gender identity that can be owned like private property. Therefore, the goal of trans feminist politics cannot be gender self-determination, where self-determination is an individual analogy to political self-determination, which is a collective rather than a, a, an interior property-bearing process. And any post-colonial you know, could tell you when a collectivity self-determines, it hardly or inevitably leads to harmony, let alone identity. Okay, point three. If not individual gender self-determination and formal inclusion within the category womanhood, trans feminism might take a historical point of view and think about how trans femmes know something about what we could call the collective ownership of the means of gender's production within larger anti-capitalist, anti-state struggles. Four, if trans femininity is not a sexological category that fusses over being or not being a narrow racialized definition of woman, we might propose that historically speaking, trans femininity is in fact a racialized and criminalized labor category. Trans femmes emerge, antagonize, and are targeted through the lens of sex work above all, not just in the metropoles of Europe or North America, but actually globally beginning in the 19th century through colonial projects, racializing sex work and native custom through one fell swoop, as, for example, in the case of anti-prostitution campaigns in India that radically disenfranchised hijras from their roles in various social settings. Trans femininity is a criminalized, pathologized, but also a sort of central lumpen proletarian category of labor that during much of the 20th century collects around the figure of the street queen, the feminized public sex worker and nightlife service economy worker. Trans femmes form alternate household units with mothers and kinship systems like the black and brown ballroom worlds in large American cities, not as an idealized or parodic citation of heterogender norms, but as material labor and kinship systems for surviving in a largely informal economy. Trans femininity is a central category of social reproduction, one whose contradictions are evident in the truism that everyone's husband is fucking us or watching us in porn while their wives are joining moral crusades to eradicate us. And five, suddenly trans feminism is no longer a problem defined by exclusion or inclusion. Instead, trans feminism is based in a historical materialist analysis of sex work, criminalization, and the social reproductive labor of feminized subjects whose centrality to modern urban spaces in metropoles, settler colonies, and global south colonies and post colonies offer a rich political grammar for building coalitional trans politics against exploitation and immiseration in all of its forms. That, I would suggest, is one example of what it might mean to practice being gay for history. Okay, I'll stop there. And also, I'm, by stopping there, I also mean I will, I will turn things over to my fellow Jules. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, thanks a lot for that uh, 
for that, and it's it's a pleasure to be collaborating. Um, can you both hear me? Okay. Okay, great. Uh, yeah, it's a pleasure to be collaborating with um with Max and yeah, <laughs> another Jules. I won't say the other Jules. Um, for the first time, this is yeah, this is really a pleasure. I suppose my remarks are um. Uh, my remarks are kind of more focused, I suppose, around around the, the qualities of history as a discipline. And I think that history has this specific ambivalent character as a pursuit, as well as sort of a more fraught one. If we talk like institutionally, if we start to look at history as a discipline, we could have like a whole conversation about faculties and academic careers and so on. And I'm sure that's something we can kind of get to. But um, something I would kind of like to talk about for a little bit or sort of sketch out um, before we get into that is just kind of the the double-edged character of history that kind of exists to it as an enterprise. So like as a way of thinking through problems and a way of thinking through political movements and uh, social change, social progress and whatever else. Uh, because this is something which I feel like um, each of our respective intellectual projects has had um, cast quite some interesting light on and something like I would be happy for us each to chat about. So, um, so I suppose like with, with history, history is something which uh, gay, queer, LGBT, whichever moniker you kind of want to use, um, people tend to go about those sort of like, usually there's sort of two like overarching things people try and do. And one of them is sort of this uh, defiant um, framework. I suppose the simplest phrasing for the first mode, which I have in mind, is this um, medieval historian's uh, website, Paul Hussle. And um, and the header of this website is like uh, People with a History. I think that's the name of the <laughs> the um, name of the website. Actually, it's like a People with a History. And this is kind of like this is kind of the vision of uh, gay life, which I think is sort of very commonplace. And sort of any number of um, LGBT etc. people have um, engaged in. Um, and it's almost this kind of like project of your sexuality as an ethnos, right? Like as a people, as something which you sort of then you sort of establish about yourself and then you go back through history and, and look for different instances. And to me, it seems like that this first register has obviously been endlessly kind of problematized and um, specifically like like characterized as thing people have done in their own very specific ways. So people would say, oh, well, people look back through history and people look through back through the past and all they see is these kind of urbane, wealthy, homosexual guys who are sort of just like them. And um, this is the sort of very commonplace critique, but I kind of feel like this is in a way, like this is, people are trying to dispense with this, this first mode a bit too easily because it feels like um, continuously in queer conversations and in uh, different discursive rows and whatever, you always have people sort of like being drawn back into this mode of argumentation, especially when it comes down to little definitional questions, which increasingly kind of bog down a lot of the circles which I keep in. So like, for instance, you know, who who gets to call themselves a lesbian? What is the, like, what are the exclusive or inclusive qualities of a bisexual? Questions like that. This is very often something which people sort of like have no hope of sort of addressing meaningfully, except through like examining the history of their own respective scenes, right? Like, like what, um, who are these people who used to be <laughs> calling themselves dykes and how have their own lives fit within compulsory heterosexuality? So this is kind of like, um, this is sort of like the first mode. And then obviously the, the kind of second more Foucauldian approach, which is, um, 
very much something which informs um yeah both of your books and also um like uh like a, a huge number of other scholarship as the more kind of like this this emphasis on on discontinuity and like uh discursive constructions and like um terms being used in a precise way right like genealogical investigations like for instance um uh i suppose what i mean here is like for instance in christopher chitty's work like there's no consideration of like like what are the political immediate ramifications of like ex having an extended investigation of sodomites and like what what does it imply that like a lot of the men that i'm looking at are um by today's terms kind of pederastic um perhaps even pedophilic figures like this isn't the primary consideration like for the genealogical mode it sort of set aside this question of uh like who am I as a person? Who are my people? And so on. And it's more looking to, well, this is what the legal term, like, this is what we're finding in these legal terminologies. I think especially in histories of a transgender child, one of the most striking um, features is this sort of like, uh, in like, yeah, the, the inextricably overlapping categorization of like intersex and transgender children and the way that these two like, um, yeah, specifically around um uh, CAH children, so children with um, irregular functioning adrenal development and, and the impact on sex hormones there, how like the cat, like uh, coming to like the physicians sort of try and come and come to terms with CAH uh, as like an intersex variation and inevitably then are kind of casting huge shadows over everyone's kind of like <laughs> so-called sex development, right? Um, so this is kind of like what, what I find very interesting about this, this double face character when it comes to like political movements is I don't really have a clear answer. And I'm, I'm really happy to chat about with you. I don't really have a clear answer for like, like how we can tell which one of these, these registers is going to be like more helpful or more useful for an emancipatory movement at any one point in time. Um, it kind of seems like people sort of oscillate sort of ad hoc, not randomly, but like, it, like people, I think any intellectual I encounter who says meaningful things about these topics sort of switches back and forth between them, right? Because you, you come into situations, and this is what um, the first things we spoke today was sort of talking about, you come into these situations which just seem to kind of demand the first register in a big way. Like, for instance, say a transphobic feminist claims that there, there was no such thing as a trans lesbian longer than 10 years ago. This is a recent one. And you can read like a, a comic uh, Dykes to Watch Out For from the early 90s where exactly this kind of plot line is covered, right? This is the point where you're sort of, your first register kicks in. You're like, well, actually I can I can prove to you. I have documented evidence that you're, you're wrong there. And this is kind of your like intuitive response or it's my intuitive response anyway. Um, but then like, um, like there are moments that that seems to provide a kind of like, uh like a clear follow-through but then there are other ones like for instance the like now kind of annual and very draining conversations about pride in its history where it seems like a bit more of this kind of deflationary a more of this kind of complicating vision is is needed especially as we see like this kind of new um somewhat dogmatic account about the the kind of righteous way that things supposedly unfolded um in that instance that kind of like inadvertently sort of uh, whitewashes to choose a charged word, the actual um, history of the personnel involved in these organizations. Um, so that's kind of like, that's sort of just thing I wanted to line up. I don't really have a lot to, like, to meaningfully say about it, but I guess just to, to sort of delve into the um, point I said, I sort of raised at the start, like about history as a discipline. Another thing which is really interesting to me is like quite, um, 
yeah, quite how few people sort of tough it out as historians. And I think like in this respect, history and philosophy are kind of these twinned humanities disciplines where simultaneously like they provide a kind of pull of fascination and clearly have this sort of air of legitimacy about them, which other kind of like studies or the literary or whatever else no longer really have retained. But also it seems like vanishingly difficult to kind of sustain a whole uh, a whole career, like to keep yourself through as a historian, because historical training is basically all I really have in academic terms. But like increasingly <laughs> any kind of success I've had in terms of stuff I've produced or collaborations I've done has been like setting that aside. You know what I mean? Like this book, um, which I'm partially responsible for, like which I co-edited, uh, like it's got historical features, but I don't think anyone would call transgender Marxism like a, a work of history. Like it's, it's got like historical essays in it, fine. But like that's not kind of how it's going to be classified. And um, I feel like this is sort of like increasingly as I watch other people like go through their careers, this is almost something which um, in many cases, people kind of have to confront. I know that this isn't actually the case for you, Jules. There's <laughs> um, kind of a heartening story, like in the other direction, right? But it's striking to me how like unusual this kind of is. How like it seems like there are these like uh, there are the humanities disciplines with a kind of cachet, and then there are the ones that like like seem to be considered more like corrupted or involved, and so on. And these are the ones where like seemingly overtly LGBT scholars tend to like like end up surviving. So um, I'm curious about your thoughts on that one and whether that's something we can imagine changing or whether that's something we should just kind of give on, give up hope on or what. So, yeah, I think that's enough for me. Um, thank you so much, Jules. Yeah, wow, that's actually, yeah, that's you, the, the, that, that last question or that, that sort of second to last series of questions where you're like, um, how, like how, how tactically basically do we choose to engage with one of these registers or not? Um, you'll see that's basically, that's what I'm wondering as well. Cause, um, yeah, so I guess I'll just read my little, my little thing too. I mean, I'm going to be, um, mostly talking about, um, some questions that I've had kind of puzzling over what, um, yeah, what the sort of political utility of, of sexual hegemony is, um, because that's, I, I didn't have, um, any kind of training as a historian or, or anything. So like, that's kind of like my most sustained engagement, um, with, uh, with this sort of universe of problems or questions, but, um, um, yeah. So, you know, if you've, if you've read the book, um, for all the people watching, um, you know, it takes, um, very extremely wide historical angle so that it can look at these kind of, um, cycles of sex panics that, um, that, uh, take the form of, um, crackdowns on sodomy at these sort of pivotal moments and, um, certain central nodal points in the development capitalist world system that have to do with, um, their sort of, um, hegemonic or commanding, um, role in a cycle of accumulation. Um, and so there's, so there's that kind of like engagement with sex panics and, and history in that, in that way. Um, but one of the interesting things that I think, um, Chitty does really well, um, is kind of argue directly against this sort of spontaneous 
uh, way of apprehending sex panics, which is that um, they are this sort of regular or inevitable like flare up of um, what turns out in this way of approaching it turns out to be a basically eternal homophobia um, that sort of comes and goes, waxes and wanes with the seasons. Um, and um, in, in his sort of approach or his critique of this sort of thinking, he says that it, it ends up taking sex panics as sort of like choosing basically arbitrary scapegoats that, as um, she said, like distracts from the real issues, which um, which unfortunately ends up kind of renaturalizing the phenomenon that it's trying to explain. Right. It's basically says like, because of homophobia or transphobia or whatever, we will therefore encounter transphobia. It's like, okay, well that is actually not particularly helpful. Um, but so what's interesting is that neither does he really seem to want to kind of, um, replace this approach with one that would kind of mechanically drive the appearance of, of a cyclical sex panic from like economic conditions. You could therefore imagine, I mean, this isn't the type of sort of, um, materialism that he's interested in, but you could imagine someone would be, um, you know, uh, seduced by the idea of being able to sort of like calculate the appearance of a sex panic based on certain like economic indicators or whatever. Um, and he, he actually seems kind of unsatisfied with what is, um, sort of the classical socialist, um, what he calls representational strategies that like respond to these, these panics, these sort of bourgeois unease, periods of unease um, over what is usually in various forms, um, a sort of metaphysical crisis of the family. Um, and the way that oftentimes the socialist tradition uh, responds to that is this kind of debunking um, where it's like, um, they, you demonstrate that this is in fact the inevitable outcome of the very social order that you're so sort of tragically committed to. Like you yourself are the foundation of this undermining of the family or whatever says the, you know, sort of like socialist to the bourgeoisie. Um, and, and then in, in his, uh, in, in the rest of his book, uh, where he talks more directly about the gay historians, he, he historicizes this, this desire for history itself, um, as a kind of, as both of you've mentioned, this is kind of, um, it's a tell, it's kind of an effect of a particular stage of development where historical knowledge, um, assumes a very important role, um, for the kind of like ruling order because various national bourgeoisies are kind of rearranging the world and they need to be able to present their demands as universally, um, desired. Uh, and so you need to have some kind of, um, alibi to kind of, um, run this scam under. Um, and so having a history all of a sudden means that you're, you're capable of transforming historically, which is a sign of the capacity to rule, um, while being stuck in history and incapable of transformation is justification for the soon to be sort of colonial subjects, um, rule by these people who've been transformed. Um, and, in, in Chitty's work, he looks at these different formations in gay historiography that kind of um, correspond to basically two different periods. Um, there's the sort of social constructivist one, which he kind of relates to the liberation era, which kind of relies on this like world history approach where it's like, oh, well, um, all types of different societies throughout history had different forms of sort of 
uh, appearance of what we'll now call homosexuality, or or you could also uh, find the same sort of tradition in trans stuff. Um, and so it kind of narrativizes this continuity with the past to justify its supersession, um, though this type of history kind of encounters um, uh, this sort of there's an antinomy between social determination by the sort of historical formation that you're addressing and this kind of then like problem of, of, of individual volunteerism. Um, and it's basically undecidable um, for a liberal paradigm thinking about history. Um, and then there's this other sort of historical formation that he sees as present in, in at least in gay historiography, which is basically marked by the, by its own crisis, by the HIV AIDS crisis, um, which is able suddenly to see that like acts and behaviors um, are themselves a sort of like constitutive material um, of these cultures that are the subject of historical investigation. And they sort of transmit between bodies in this um, eerie or uh, interesting like mirror of the virus, which then kind of um, it, it threatens the very sort of like um, the public cultures that that reproduce both themselves in this virus as a um as a historical object and so the the the, the place where he 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 ends his, his analysis in the present um or in the present of his composition of this book um is that actually um the current period is not uh uh sort of characterized by this this these crises um, but in fact, is um, uh, is is it's remarkable for its its waning of sexual affect, um, and uh, that it's not in crisis basically, or that like the crisis is no longer as generative um, historically as it once was. Um, and in his introduction, he proposes basically sidestepping these two sort of affective responses that are attached to the two different historiographical formations, which he calls um, the, the, the Whiggish and the tragic cathexes of history. So like the sort of romantic, like um, way of thinking of like, you know, uh, pride as a kind of gay history as a kind of like eternal pride march. That's like um, ending in a wonderful um, circuit party or something. And then the, the tragic, uh, or melancholic one is, is, is one that's more kind of focused on the, um, the history of, uh, of, of misery, of oppression and, and loss. Um, and he says, neither of these things are necessarily appropriate right now. I'm going to adopt a more disengaged persona. Um, and precisely because it's, um, it's, it's not as subject to this sort of demand or this call to make past sexual formations respond really urgently. Um, to sort of like temporal um, problems, um, which has been generative, but um, I guess the implication is that like for him, this 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 inadequately or um, partially, you know, kind of partially um, uh, results in this kind of like um, uh, dialectical or historical materialist analysis, um, and you know, and so like the last. Like chronologically, the last scene of the book is this um, uh, is this scene in in, in San Francisco in 2013, um, Excuse me, where there's this conflict between the um, 
the like the Pride Committee um, and uh, Chelsea Manning essentially over whether or not she's allowed to be the Grand Marshal because of her, you know, um, her traitorous acts. Um, and this is supposed to show how the kind of like this long history of um, thinking about this long sort of like um, like outlaw history, essentially, or lumpen history has kind of foundered um, on the grounds of uh, neutral, political neutralization and like is kind of a stalemate on, on Market Street in 2013. Um, but obviously, since then, um, there's been quite a an effective uh, reactivation of, of of antagonisms um, along relatively similar lines. I mean, obviously, he uh, Chris was was very strict, I think, about looking at male sodomites. But if if you look at the material, also like there's always this kind of problem of like how it destabilizes gender, and probably there are many of the people he's sort of like. Um, uh, coming through history to, to talk about were trans perhaps or um, so you know it, it it seems very clear that like this this sort of historical cycle has 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 started up again um, or at least is still still active um, in a way that he is taking up as kind of defunct or at least taking a bit of distance from to, to begin his, his analysis. Um, and so I guess my question is, or, you know, I, I obviously, I, I love the sort of work that he did with it. I find it, I mean, I found it, you know, so transformative for my thinking and et cetera, et cetera. But, um, you know, in this moment of um, kind of acute, uh, more acute danger, I would say, um, it, it sometimes seems to me like a little bit um, hard to uh, answer with a lot of certainty, like what his analysis does for us um, in terms of responding to these political questions that need some kind of uh, um, uh, uh, yeah response. Um, and so I have a couple of questions, I guess I wanted to just float um, and then I would love to just open this up to more back and forth. Um, you know, one, one of the questions is like, yeah, this, this precise, issue of like he's extremely cautious particularly about recruiting past sexual forms to to sort of respond or stand in for an answer um, in the present and this is sort of related excuse me to your to your um sort of idea about debunking jewels um and uh you know the, the shadow that these various figures cast on other people is like is is that like obviously we need to be careful about it, but is this, do we need to be so careful that we can't engage? Like, I guess that's one question. Um, uh, but is it, you know, is it like, is it a scholarly distinction for him or is it a, a question of political strategy? Because inevitably such a, a sort of imagined affiliation will sort of ensnare us in some kind of bad, like relation to the present order because I don't know. Um, and the, I guess the other thing, the more sort of directly pertinent question is like, how much is, is, is his sense about sort of social exhaustion um, of the kind of like, um, you know, explosivity of these, of these antagonisms? Uh, is that a kind of artifact of his like strict restriction of his um, 
uh, investigation into men and sodomites in particular, um, or is it actually a kind of larger sort of warning or caution to people who um, want to be engaging in this sort of field of, of sexual contention, um, not to be like, uh, not to be too captivated by the kind of like religious fervor that, that really invests these moments of, of panic and, 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 and mistakenly think that, yeah, we can just kind of like go sort of like blow for blow with the fascists on these questions um, and come out um, safely on the other end. Um, so those are some questions. Um, and I, we certainly don't need to like center on that, but um, yeah. And thank you both so much for, for joining and, and for sharing what you were thinking before. I'm, I wonder if maybe I could tie what you're just saying, Max, to something that, that you really, I think, passionately asked about Jules, which is like the role of like historians or, you know, I mean, it's sort of a larger labor question of who can tough it out to do anything right now. Um, but, but it's one that I, 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 I am happy to hear as addressed to me in part only because I am the weird, like exceptional one, the one trans woman historian other than Susan Stryker. Um, to have like a stable academic employment, um, which, you know, can't explain how that happened exactly. But in any case, because uh, I simply don't know. Um, but but one of the things that makes me think about right is sort of like, right, it has to do with where critical Right. I mean, to me, I'm trying to think of like oh, a single frame to hold this. Right. But to me, in my mind, it has something to do with sort of the problem of like which modes of knowledge production that are critical also historicize their own mode of production, right? Like this is one of the reasons that in both sexual hegemony and transgender Marxism, you know, a historical materialist approach is preferred because it's one of the few um, that will historicize itself, right? And understand that it's producing critical knowledge, not from um, either nowhere, right? Uh, you know, a sort of disembodied um, observer, or perhaps more relevantly to us, some sort of romantic or tragic political idealization that certainly feels good, but is actually, you know, really sort of betrays the intellectual components of, of the work itself. And, and I think that that's an important thing to think about right now, you know, two things anecdotally that I might say are like, you know, something I talk a lot about at Transgender Studies Quarterly, which is supposed to be the flagship sort of journal for, for this academic field, is that, you know, there's a lot of really amazing trans work and writing and thinking that happens outside of academia that I, as an editor of this journal, don't want to encourage to come into academic precincts because we can't basically because we can't pay people um, for their writing. And so we really provide almost no value um, for, for platforming with us except to academics, right? Which is already its own labor problem that we get plenty of um, criticism for and of which we are very symptomatic. Um, so that's one. But another one would be sort of like, you know, what the fuck is the purpose of like uh, institutional historians at the moment, right? Like I have gone through this experience myself very intensely for the past few years where, you know, I happen to write this book 
that is unfortunately very timely in that it can absolutely prove empirically that trans children have a history, um, a very central history, have been used and abused by medicine, and therefore um, all of the so-called gender critical lies, QAnon conspiracy theories and fantasies about trans children circulating in the public sphere right now are, you know, completely fallacious. And it can also explain how they are full, right? So I can do all of that. I did it all. It's all sitting there, right? Um, and and as I as I found myself called in the media, you know, in the last six months to try and, you know, make some of that available outside of academic circuits of reading. One of the things I found the most bizarre is on the one hand, like, you know, for example, I, I pulled off a, a New York Times op-ed, which required the most extensive verification of my work I've ever done in my life. Like they had me fact checking my own book. And I was like, you know, this was peer reviewed, right? Um, they're like, yes, but like, show me your work. And there were moments where I had to be like, I can't show you these archival sources that would be like illegal. You know, they were governed under HIPAA law in the US and I can't show you, you know, but I was literally emailing primary sources to this editor at the Times, right? So what did that afford, right? Like a certain level of credentialization that I've never achieved before where I was like, look, she's the expert. Um, and, um, and one of the things that I found so dumb about that was on the one hand, it was very effective in just sort of immunizing myself against you know, bad faith trolls. But on the other hand, it sort of created this weird persona that I've been really resentful of lately, where I'm just like, I'm really tired all the time. I'm really angry all the time. I don't enjoy being harassed and subject to sexual harassment and death threats and things like that for doing my job because my job is a historian. Are you joking? Like what is so like when I was a little baby faggot who wanted to go into academia, I was not like, I am going to bring about the revolution as an associate professor, right? Like it's such a bizarre situation where I'm constantly feeling like, oh, there's no venue for me to yell back at turfs and fascists because it's my job to be this reasonable, you know, privileged trans woman of color who happens to be an associate professor. But on the other hand, I don't want to spend all my time yelling back at them because that's all a trap, right? And I actually do want to go back to the archives and write more books. So I'm not offering a a sort of, um, you know, I'm not exactly sure what my point is there, but I was just thinking of like, you know, who has access to what historical materials and who can use them, right? One of the things I've been trying to shift myself towards that actually feels good is like making the materials in my book, which are not easily readable because of its um, genre, academic genre, more available in the public sphere. So writing shorter articles, putting primary sources out there, where I'm thinking of like one of my favorite, probably my favorite um, platform for trans history, Morgan M. Page's podcast, one from the vaults that just like that has an audience that's getting stuff out there. It's delicious. It's pleasurable. It's masterful storytelling. Um, and it's every bit as rigorous as what I do. And, and, you know, sometimes I, I can only, um, dwell on my envy at how, how wonderful and, and successful that, that work is. And, and, you know, it ought to be, um, recognized and compensated, you know, equally or in excess of mine, um, of my work. So, you know, I think there's something going on right now with sort of like who, yeah, just sort of, we're trying to wrestle with this kind of like, well, you know, neoliberalism killed all the institutions that were killing us anyways, and not letting any of us in anyways. And, and so should, how do we use the ones that we still have access to, but also like, you know, who needs this history and when, um, and so I, I guess, 
to stop myself from talking further, one thing that I was just thinking about in, in wrapping up this rant is like, you know, I think there's a sort of way that, um, yeah, like the sort of disengaged persona that Chitty is working towards in that book makes a lot of sense. Um, and it, it affords a lot, right? It affords a certain perspective, criticality, um, and it's not a refusal to sit with uncomfortable feelings. It's a sort of ask that we defer that moment just to consider something first. Um, but never, but nevertheless, right? I don't know. I just think there are different. Yeah, I'm not sure where I was going to go with that. So never mind. Let me just let me just stop right there. I think this question of like what is scholarly versus what is a political strategy, and oh yeah, right. To, that was what I wanted to say to connect back what to what Jules said. Those two frameworks of history, right? A sort of like we're a people, we have a history, ugh, versus like it's all discontinuity. But then we have nothing to say when you know people are marching in the streets and beating us up, right? Other than like, didn't you know in 1945, right? Um, and so. I I think actually toggling back and forth does make a lot of sense. Um, and I think that like trying to prove people wrong is not the point, but, um, but sort of, you know, arming people with, 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 uh, historical resources for thinking critically about their position in the world and what they want, what the education of their desire is going to be, where their libido is taking them. Right. Like, I don't think we need facts to prove that, you know, trans children shouldn't be, um, eugenically exterminated um, from the face. So I don't, I don't need history to say that I can just say that because I'm not monstrous. Um, but you know, that's, that's, you know, so I don't know what saying that and then holding up a book really does, but, um, but it feels like something at least, um, and it's something I've been trying to do. So I'm very curious if, if either of you have thoughts on sort of what to do about it and, and how not to feel, I guess that like the cyclicality of sex panics just means like, like, I don't want to be doing this again still in 20 years. Like I will quit my job at that point and go hide, um, you know, in a forest somewhere, because that's not what I signed up for either. Uh, yeah, I, I have some things to say about, about, um, yeah, those remarkable comments from both of you, which, um, I think this ties in also with this as a question from Joshua Palmer, which has got put into the chat which runs, is the is intimacy the crux between those registers? The first requires intimacy with historical actors, where the second is efficacious because it sets aside claims of intimacy in favor of discourse emergence. Um, yeah, which is a great way of putting it. And I think, um, yeah, I think, well, this this is sort of both about, about uh, Jules's remark on the, the NYT friendly persona, <laughs> which is this remarkable thing, which I've also seen our enemies craft when I say our enemies figures like Alice Driga, you know, um, you can tell very clearly that they've had to sort of fashion themselves. Uh, and, and some people who are like outright transphobic feminists, like they've had to fashion themselves in a way, which is if not NYT friendly, at least like fit for the UK broadsheets, obviously, and stuff like that. And it is this um, remarkably kind of like simultaneously, unnerving kind of like desiccating but also empower, empowering process that I think you always run into when you encounter one of these these like powerful institutions or like powerful whatever um that uh it's it's hard to to do it to yourself and then it's also hard to get out of it is is kind of my take on it and um yeah but it is it is remarkable but it's also like I think what what, what I, I would like to say about this I guess is in 
Christopher Chitty's book, that kind of like framing which he's talking about, he uses in, in the introduction is, is he calls it like a queer realism. And um, and I'm curious, about, I, so I've written this review, which sadly has not come out yet because the new socialist is taking forever to get out there. But this idea of a queer realism is the one that I hope people really uh, like take out of that uh, that book, which you um, uh, were responsible for getting out into the world, Max, which is this... Um, I kind of like, I think simultaneously that, that question from Joshua does kind of cover what um, Chitty was trying to do. But on the other hand, it's got this kind of like double entendre feature where it's like realism, both as in like Marxism as a methodological school, but also the real as in uh, Cheryl Lynn, Sylvester and that whole, um, that kind of sensibility right, which is, um, yeah, maybe kind of like aloof and cool, but also still involved, you know, still out on the scene, <laughs> still like getting to the disco, right? Uh, and that's kind of like the the double entendre, which I think kind of like does provide, that it does kind of like provide something. I'm not sure like, like yeah, that's not going to get you everywhere, but I think that maybe allows us, um, maybe that allows us something we can... Um, something we can kind of kind of like strive for i had like um a few other thoughts about like the the backlash you were talking about jules and my own experience but maybe i can like can like let max respond first and then we can get back to like the historical historical controversies like like the way historical controversies like get get outside of the world of historians very easily right because i do find that fascinating like somehow it's like such a boring discipline and yet also such a (laughs) such a provocative one such an irritating one even for people who've never had anything to do with the history faculty themselves right yeah um yeah okay let me see if i can synthesize those are both really um provocative points or comments on let me see if I can synthesize a useful response. So um uh yeah so I've been I've been also sort of reflecting on this question of what he meant with that term um Jules because um it's queer realism because it's like it's a it is it's it's a it's enigmatic and he doesn't it's partially my fault in the way that I've sort of like arranged the chapters and things from different um like moments of composition but he doesn't use it very much after he introduces it in the sort of opening thing, even though I do think it's like present as a methodology. Um, and one of the things that has um, occurred to me in the past couple of months um, is that one of the, the way another, another use of, of realism is, um, in, is, is from Jameson, which is in the sense of demystification. Um, and, um, and what would need to be demystified would 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 be these kind of like um, natural categories that um, uh, of sex and gender, or whatever that kind of um, stabilize themselves in a in a sort of spontaneous emotional response um, to to their appearance in the world, um, and and so that's why he has this kind of like in this in that in that methodology section in the beginning. That's why he has this kind of like I'm taking a different emotional approach to this historical question, not because, um, well, yeah, because, because, because that is actually an analytic, uh, move because it produces a different sort of relationship to history, uh, um, sort of, and I'm sorry, uh, Joshua's question about it, it, it produces a different type of intimacy or it kind of sidesteps 
a kind of unbidden intimacy with the past, or um, it kind of like allows you to kind of like engage intimately um, with uh, sort of past um, uh, past historical actors or whatever. And anyway, I was going to say, um, Jules, other Jules, to, to your point about like what um, what uh, what it, like what is the use of the, of this kind of like debunking or whatever? I mean, I find I find that very close to the kind of demystification that he's trying to. Um, the kind of um, showcase in, in this in this different um, historical uh, arena, and and I think you do it really really well in your introduction, um, both in the kind of emotional register that I, I was mentioning um, before, where you're like, actually, I, I I care a lot actually about these children, um, but also that like I'm I'm showing you that like by your innocence, like your your kind of like uh, surprise at the at the appearance of these historical characters, you are complicit in um, in maintaining the sort of annihilation of this um, uh, of, of this category of existence, um, and that that's a kind of demystification. Um, or realism, queer realism, or trans realism, maybe that, like, I think is actually tactically very powerful, um, though uh, it, clearly it's exhausting <laughs> too, you know, like you can only do it so much um, and you can only kind of like, yeah, destabilize your enemies like that so many times before you've gotten sort of drawn into the whole, um, the whole kind of like terrifying back and forth. And I think, I mean, again, to kind of touch on this other line of thinking that you both raised, which I think is really interesting as well is like, you know, the kind of like the, 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 the formal register in which it appears, um, like if, if you're articulating it at the kind of like op ed, um, version, or you're saying it in the kind of like scholarly, um, uh, language that, um, might be necessary for like inclusion in, um, in the academy, um, that has effects on the argument because the argument is a question. Well, maybe this is a little bit different, but the, the realism is a formal question, right? Like the, 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 the sort of historical object is in some ways, um, about the sort of generic form of appearance of, um, uh, social experiences that kind of like take these natural, um, because spontaneous uh, emotional responses and kind of like stabilize themselves across time. Um, and it's very difficult to kind of like unearth how that relates to like a sort of productive economy or whatever, which is, which is why it's so easy in sort of queer and trans studies to, to get to this kind of like romantic or voluntaristic approach where like, I just, uh, I'll, we'll just do something different because it's a question of feeling different and I can, elicit a different kind of feeling, um, with a slight change of, of, of scene or something. Um, but, um, oh, I don't know if I can, uh, tie this back together, but, um, uh, yeah, maybe I'll just stop there for now. Sorry. I think like a couple of things, I think that both of you are raising that are really clarifying, right? Like, and this is where I, I appreciate that um, as much as Sexual Hegemony is a book that thinks in interesting and new ways about the history of capitalism in relation to sexuality, it's also like 
I haven't settled on the adjective here, but I was going to say unflinchingly, but that's such a weird word. How about lovingly Foucauldian? <laughs> I don't know. Unflinchingly Foucauldian. What a weird thing to say. Um, you know, in the sense that like one of the lessons that I learned in graduate school by reading, you know, more Foucault than I would know what to do with that I'll never get out of my head is that basically, you know, and I think this is why Foucault feels so difficult, you know, um, especially for, yeah, like, you know, people trained in a Marxist tradition that are like, ugh, there's nowhere to go here, right? Um, the account of political action is so meticulously scrutinized um, that it tends to feel like it drops off the face of the earth. But the thing that we get in return, right, is about not so much about studying knowledge formation, but about being knowledge producers ourselves, which is like a question that I increasingly want to ask when people want to know something about trans history. Why? To what end? Why do you want to know? And for what purpose? Because the knowledge itself doesn't just do things. It's not magical. It's not reason. It's not, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not trapped in the enlightenment in that way. I don't believe producing the right knowledge and information will transform the world in and of itself. It has to have a context. It has to do something. It needs to be for a purpose, right? And so in that regard, I think part of what, part of what we're interested in here is like this sort of question of like, well, do I need to be a part of a, of a discursive moral machine um, that I'm not ultimately invested in? Um, or, you know, is there other stuff I want to do? Or also, like, can I produce work that has other use values other than politics? And I think that so much queer and trans thought is just is just really beholden to the, the sort of laziest idealizations um, and pedagogies of information, right? That, like, if you just learn what... Marsha and Sylvia did in 1970, you'll find a fully fledged vision of the political adequate to the present. And it's like, that's beyond dumb. It's actually just offensive to the work that they were doing in the 70s because it has nothing to do with it. It has nothing to do with the past. It's just a thing that you need right now. On the other hand, right, I, I'm, I'm really indebted to Robin Wiegman's sort of formation, you know, in object lessons around identity knowledge as being these particular kinds of fields of critical inquiry where we are beset always and inevitably by the political desires we invest in the scene of knowledge production. And so I, I, I certainly don't mean to say, like, then we just you know, it doesn't matter, just write boring histories, right? Um, but um, but I think like, you know, Max, what you were mentioning about my book is pretty emblematic, right? There's this searing preface at the beginning where I've just come out, you know, guns blazing um, for the basically, you know, the failure both on, on the conservative side, but also on the liberal trans-affirmative side to give a shit about trans kids. No one could give less of a shit about them and are happy to sacrifice them at the altar of their little pet projects of sentimentality that are mostly about whiteness and reproduction. Um, and, you know, I do that not because the history that follows exactly links, syncs up with the point that I'm making, but it kind of does if you read it carefully. Um, and, but, you know, I, I, as far as I understand my relationship to actually doing historical work, I try not to overread and over, you know, overdetermine the archives I'm writing about. I just sort of tend to curate them and say, well, here's what I saw. Let me walk you through the steps it would take for you to come to the same conclusion, but I'm not going to force you to. In the preface, I'm going to hold your hand and sort of threaten to smack you if you don't, you know, wise up. But like, that's because it's the preface, right? And I think that, you know, that sort of multiplicity is sort of one that I was saying to Max before we 
went live, um, you know, for me, actually methodologically processually was entirely personal. I wrote the historical chapters of the book entirely dissociated, trying to avoid transitioning myself. And then it was writing this kind of preface where I was like, I really care about these kids, even though my book is against caring in that sort of way, I really care about them. And then it turns out that also meant that I cared about myself. So, you know, maybe I'll save my own life and transition to ha ha ha. But, you know, now I have to sit here and be alive to write books and be yelled at, um, which is really annoying, which kind of just proves the point, right? Is that a sort of sentimental politics of saving the lives of people doesn't actually do anything. You have to then establish a quality of life and try to be less alienated and, and less exploited and less miserable uh, in being in the world. So, you know, I think part of what I like about what we're saying here is that um, the problem is not to like devise an ideal method or program, the problem, I mean, the, the problem is just whatever. It just, it is the the way we, in which we find ourselves, you know, in the midst of this profoundly phobic world. And yet with an immense amount of resources that we often completely sacrifice in the name of idealism, um, right? Like, I think one of the things that I find so frustrating, and I think actually both sexual hegemony and transgender Marxism fulfill really, like, this is, this is, sort of what I've been going through in the last weeks, like sexual hegemony rid me of a certain stubborn residual presence of sexology's sort of vice grip on our thinking, right? Where we really are trapped in a modern mode of sexuality, where we think sexuality came out of science and it's all about taxonomy and classification and ideology. Are you or aren't you? Where did it come from? Are you ever going to solve that problem and be allowed to live? And then transgender Marxism comes in and is like, yeah, fuck all that shit. Did you know we're also exploited and we could just do this like other and out, right? And I think part of part of what it's about doing, right, is like coming to understand that we're not just like all the time that we spend sitting on Twitter being like, actually, there were leather folks that, you know, or being like, actually, you know, um, blah, 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 pansexuality versus bisexuality. It's like, I'm not mad about that as an old person getting mad at kids. I'm only mad about that because I'm like, you know, that's within the same ep epistemology and rubric as the turf. So it's just kind of a failing battle. If you're on, you're literally a moralist. So you're, you're basically just a, a queer, you're just doing Christianity by another name and calling it queer. So like, eh, but you know, that's fine. Um, it's easy enough to point that out. I think the thing that really bothers me is just like, do you know how much libidinal energy we could unhook from that intramural fight and actually use on things like, oh, I don't know, minimum wage and welfare, universal basic income, <laughs> like, you know, uh, like, you know, defunding and abolishing the police and prison. Like, you know, we're all sitting here, um, you know, terrified and fucked up, but like, you know, we're not broken and destroyed. Um, and, but, you know, there's nothing sort of like, then history doesn't become, right? Um, the proof of our goodness. And I think that's one thing that's really challenging, right? And I, and I say this a lot, right? It's like, you know, and I'll use Marcia and Sylvia as the example, if they had already figured it all out, why are we living 50 years later and, you know, trans women of color's living conditions are essentially structurally the same? That doesn't make any sense. If they had figured out the keys to revolution and we've known them this whole, or we know them now, why are we not, why is nothing happening? It doesn't make any sense. It's circular logic, right? Um, and so I think then you have to abandon the idea that the people in the past provide you, you know, the proof that you are good and therefore deserve the thing that they didn't get. 
right? And that's just so much what the queer and trans desire for history is actually doing on a psychic level is just like making us feel better, which is like fine, but like, you know, we can just do that in our fantasy life and then like maybe also, you know, organize for things that we want. Um, like it's another version of the answer to the question about who gets to be a historian, like everything in academia. I'm like, I don't know. It's just a labor problem. Like, have we heard of unions? Like, you know, there's like no secret to be revealed here about why we're all suffering as laborers who sell our ideas and words for money like we've known for several centuries it just took on new form so um sorry i've gone rambly again and i lost my thoughts so i'll just stop which you know just to say is like messy but a sign that i'm like thinking a lot of things and really enjoying talking to both of you yeah i appreciate the mess a lot <laughs> i um I feel like there's, yeah, there's, a, there's a, a lot of stuff I could respond to there. I suppose one of the things which we discussed, we discussed kind of like bouncing emails around each other is this, um, yeah, this strange kind of sanctifying role of, um, yeah, Marsha Johnson, Sylvia Rivera, like, uh, yeah, I think the, the, the graphic for this, this thing was that them as kind of like this spectral presence behind us, right? <laughs> which, uh, which gave, I think gave all of us some kind of ambivalent feelings and, um, yeah. And, uh, my fellow Jules was kind of pointing out they always use exactly the same photograph, right? Actually, the two of them were together. Um, yeah, I suppose with my, uh, yeah, my kind of like, like my thoughts on that are very much that, um, yeah, I do from time to time like to watch this famous Christopher Street uh, speech because it, it still does inspire me today, but probably the bit which people often don't mention, it's kind of viewed as this confrontational moment where like the gay boys and perhaps this is lesbians are kind of like confronted with, um, yeah, trans femininity, as we'd call it these days, uh, and their own racism and so on. Um, but this part at the end where she says, like, uh, here's the address of the star building and you should come and uh, like, you come and we'll, we'll do stuff together, I guess. I can't remember her exact words, but yeah, this is kind of the part which I feel like, I feel like that's kind of the, the both the important part of what, uh, made that group one anyone remembers or like they remember these days anyway. Um, but also maybe something that is kind of lacking a lot, the sense of like, well, let's just, <laughs> like let's let's get together let's like organize and, and i don't know um so that's that's kind of something there was also a question in chat which i suppose uh i have a very easy answer to uh, someone uh mike mike palomeric was asking about trans femme as a labor category and um yeah essential to study is a productive non-reductive non-orthodox way so this is my chance to like plug the book which has already happened a bit so like uh, there's <laughs> there's two chapters about like labor stuff in transgender Marxism. One's like Michelle O'Brien's kind of sociological take, and then there's Kate Doyle Griffiths, which is more like labor ethnography. So like there's that, but obviously it kind of shoots through the whole collection. Um, Nat Raha's book also has some good stuff on on Star and Wages to Lesbians and other equivalent groups that she kind of reads together. I think very effectively, just kind of showing how like there aren't really so much difference between these early kind of lesbian uh, labor focus groups. And then like, um, yeah. And they're, they're kind of parallel organizing. So um, yeah. So I had some, I had some other points to make, but um, I'm trying to like, I'm trying to get a grip on what, what kind of we were running through. Like what, I don't know. Like what, what do you think we should talk about next? 
Um, oh, I don't know. I, I mean, I mean, I, I was really struck, I think maybe, um, uh, you know, not surprisingly, but by this question of like, um, say this desire to save people in the past or like uh, kind of redeem our own, redeem the past and also redeem ourselves. I mean, obviously it like, it kind of, you know, brushes up very closely uh, on, on like the, the, my process of engaging with this book as like a sort of morning thing. Um, but I, it has opened up into other questions about like relating to history um, generally, but so that, that's what I was sort of um, running through my head, but I don't know if that's, if that's the direction that you're interested in going in, Jules. Well, maybe one of the things about that that's like really prescient, right? I mean, I just think of as a historian, like history is, um, huh, I meant to say humbling, but I was about to say humiliating. It is humiliating too. It's like if you go in, to an archive, like especially a, a you know a stuffy dusty institutional archive like um like the Johns Hopkins Medical Archives which I spent years at right um they've certainly ha- that's actually not a good example because they have trans researchers there all the time okay say like some other one that doesn't have a lot like the Beinecke has this incredible Yale has this incredible collection that a trans woman you know of her stuff that she donated um you know just collection of tons and tons of stuff and I was there to look at you know pornography and photo books and stuff and I was like this is an absurd scenario right you go and you sit in the Beinecke every day for a while looking at your you know looking at like she porn and stuff from the 70s which is what I was doing you know and and you go and you're like well this is just humiliating for me to be here um but then it's also humbling because you sit in front of what is available in the archive and you're like god damn this doesn't conform to anything that i think and like it's so big and woof right and and i think that like part of why i like history in part is because it tends to overwhelm um and it it shows you how impossible it is to add up to a singular narrative because you're literally just confronted with an array of boxes that you either showed up to look at or didn't look at right like for example some things are accidental like probably the best sources in my book are letters written by trans kids to doctors in the 60s and 70s that i just found basically by accident by going through boxes of correspondence and just looking for the age of someone on a letter and that was the only way i could go through like 10,000 letters in three days right so i just didn't read anything by someone over 21 so i have no idea what was in there but i found all these letters from teenagers right but it was just because I don't know. I woke up one morning in one morning in Bloomington, Indiana to go to the Kinsey Institute and was like, what if I just looked for their, you know? And so you're just like, oh, okay. Like history is not a thing for me. Right. Except of course it is intensely intimate and personal when you're there. But I think one of the things I was taught by my mentor, who's a historian of sexuality in undergrad that has always stuck with me. was a, a sort of, I don't know. I don't think it was offered as a parable, but it's become a parable in my personal memory that, you know, our job as scholars is not to um, write about other people living or past, present, you know, whatever, not to write about other people as if we know something about them that they don't know about themselves, because that is the ultimate sort of fallacy of, you know, transcendental reason that, you know, the enlightenment unfortunately gifts us that we have to find our way out of. Right. In so many elegant and inelegant ways. Right. And so to me, what really rubs me the wrong way about people idealizing folks like Starhouse is like, 
you're talking about them like you know something they didn't know about themselves. And you just absolutely don't from, you know, being in an archive, right? Um, and I just think that kind of leap out of history into what we need it to be is 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 really, you know, it just never leads to good thinking. Um, but, you know, it's not an impulse that you can cleanse, right, in some sort of sociopathic way. <laughs> but you can use these methodologies that, like, Chitty, for example, uses, right, to sort of somewhat dispassionately somewhat dispassionately, rigorously and empirically do work, right? And then come to really interesting and important ideas that you can show are reflexive and, you know, that you spend a lot of time thinking about, but you can never, yeah. So I just think that like, it's helpful to to think of history as some as a place where we might want to be overwhelmed because otherwise we'll miss things right like to me the great overwhelm of writing my book was not that trans children had history that was the easiest part for me the overwhelm was finding out that trans children were actually completely central to the concept of gender and sex in the 20th century because their developing bodies were the locus of the racial plasticity that founds all medicine um, in relation to sex and gender. Like, I didn't know that, right? I legitimately didn't know that. And if you go back and retrace all my work in the archives, you'll never find a piece of paper that says, dated 1965, where John Money says, you know, I think children are the developmental bedrock of the racial class. No, that was my argument, right? So, but I had to really kind of like let it, you know, completely wash over me and spend years thinking about it. And that's the thing that I can't do if I sit down to write an op-ed in one morning, right? So I, I do see value to being a professional historian. I mean, but the main value is that it pays my bills. Um, but I do see value to doing that work because it, it's, it's a really interesting method for sort of working with the contradictions of our desires and the reality of the past being totally heterogeneous, right? I mean, I think just to throw out a couple of really interesting things from sexual hegemony, it suggests, for example, that sexuality is not really a place to look for freedom so much as is a place where violence and exploitation and hierarchy <laughs> are staged and where contradictions between the ruling class and the bourgeoisie play out by taking working class people as as their object. Um, but there's no, you know, there's no triumphal scene of working class sodomites rising up, right? And it's also like this weird account where men are just kind of like really fucked up and weird for like thousands of years in the Mediterranean. I, um, I, I've been watching, I watched this 2004 Oliver Stone film about Alexander the Great with my boyfriend last week. It's super weird. It's another one of these films where it's like, why are all these straight white actors like so excited to play like sodomitical ancient people? Um, but anyways, one of the things that was so weird about it is I was like, so really like dudes in the Mediterranean have just kind of been like aggressively acting like frat boys for 4,000 years and just like raping, pillaging, conquering and like sexually assaulting each other. And that's just like where the modern like political Western system and intellectual, it's intellectual edifice comes from. And the film like ends with Ptolemy, who's become the Pharaoh of Egypt saying like, gosh, you know, the great thing about Alexander was that ever since him, we could imagine one king for the whole world. And, you know, Hellenic culture, famously open to all, could become the culture of the world. And I was like, oh my God, right? Like, 
men, men, like, what were you all doing? Like, you just had sex with each other and were like, out of this sexual violence, I have learned how to conquer the, like, yeah, that's really interesting. That's a very different sexuality studies than the one that we have. That's like, gay people are good because they're gay. And it's like, oh, okay, well, that was a very important argument in the 1970s and 80s, um, but less so, you know, if we're taking a more expanded view. So anyways, I just think like, that's an example of humbling ourselves to a certain extent, right? To open ourselves to the argument of sexual hegemony and think, for example, that homosexuality may not actually historically for most of its existence is not an emancipatory or subversive thing, but actually very central to the machinations of a really misogynist, patriarchal, Western, imperialist, political history, political economic history. And then all of a sudden it's like, damn, what do we do with that? Right. I kept thinking like, wow, women, like, I wonder what they were thinking during this whole time period. Right. So anyways, that, that would be the last thing I have to say. Um, yeah, well, I, yeah, I just got a message saying we have five minutes to go and I definitely got more than five minutes of things to say. So I guess I can just kind of boil down a few of the things I was thinking about. Um, yeah, this, this point about like immersion and, and kind of like coming up with an account of things, which sort of isn't directly useful, (laughs) isn't directly strategically helpful or anything like that. Um, yeah, it really resonates with me. And I suppose I have like a sort of, um, yeah, with my own research, which was more kind of historically oriented, uh, it was mostly kind of focused on Byzantine eunuchs. So um, in this case, it's like uh, that quite that quite this kind of like, well, definitely an unhelpful figure because uh, well, well, primarily eunuchs were created through castration, although not um, universally. There seem to have also been various uh, people who are so-called born eunuchs. So that's a biblical reference. And in that case, like uh, seemingly intersex variations were kind of rolled into this identity. And um, when it comes to like my thoughts on them, the issue is kind of like it's it's all too easy to sort of collapse these pre-modern categories with things we're more familiar with. And I have like uh, a review of this book, Byzantine Intersectionality by Roland Bethencourt, who's an art historian, which along the way, this book kind of claims that um, eunuchs are like gender fluid and non-binary and so on. And to me, like, uh, yeah, to me, I'm, <laughs> I'm very much get like discontinuous when people start to make these kind of claims because um exactly because this uh gender category or position or whatever you want to call it was so like uh obviously integrated into everything from uh the church so you had eunuchs serving in in male only roles as priests bishops even the patriarch at one point uh in at various points in the history you had them serving in military roles and so on so on some level they clearly had this sort of like uh at least possible male identification which makes things a bit um more complex in terms of like like how you describe them and exactly this kind of impulse to sort of sweep them into um, more familiar modern positions, I think especially kind of causes problems when you're describing um, pre-modern categories as gender queer, because this is kind of like obviously an adversarial, this is meant to be like an irritating, um, non-participating term. So I'm not sure there's really like evidence that that's how people were ever styling themselves like consciously, you know what I mean, even if they were being characterized that way by their detractors. And um, I suppose I had also some some um, stuff to say about about like what it's like working with them as a historian. But maybe we need to wrap up, Max. I'm not sure. 
I mean, I suppose, uh, yeah, I suppose we hit the hit the minute the limit. But I mean, I'm fascinated if you have if you have like a a minute version of that. Answer. I think that's really interesting. Yeah. Well. Well, the, the, <laughs> a weird thing about them is also like I, I guess like I've I've tried to kind of like introduce this introduce this stuff to sort of like, um, well, to like Marxist historians a bit because I kind of do feel like the thing which makes them very challenging as figures is you have obviously, um, obviously this is like a pre-colonial gender identity. This is like a pre-modern, um, gender position. Yet on the other hand, that like obviously like integrated into property secession into statecraft and all this other stuff so they have this kind of complex relationship and um and this was also what like uh yeah so the one time i've had like really like a a whole gang of transphobic feminists going after me they exactly used like a screenshot of when i was giving this talk and sort of like rolled together my research on unix and my uh bizarre family abolitionist politics kind of into one thing and um <laughs> primarily like the insults were obviously about my looks because it wasn't my fishiest day let's say uh but the ones which were not just kind of going after my physical appearance were kind of like scoffing at the idea that anyone would be like an ancient historian <laughs> like specifically like an ancient historian of eunuchs right and this was kind of like showing me up on some level um well that's the position that these um these uh uh, let's say social media respondents <laughs> to my talk we're making. So um, it's kind of it's like a curious one, but this is exactly what seems so strange to me. And this is just like I guess tying back into what um, uh, another Jules was saying earlier in this talk was like it's really weird to me that simultaneously history has this kind of quality of of needing to be dispassionate and um, dried out and all of that. And yet, on the other hand, it really seems to get under the skin like of reactionaries in a way which no other discipline does. Like sometimes even the notion, you just be like, oh, like, how could you even study such a thing, uh, whether it's it's eunuchs or, or transgender children from the 20th century or whatever else. So anyway, that, I guess I guess that what I would close with is it's always like I always like to make an appeal to trolling. And I feel like if it if it seems to like irritate right wing people this much, then I can't tell you why. Uh, that is, but it seems to suggest that we're on the right track in some way, right? Um, okay, I think we're, we're really running out of time now, um, but thank you both so much for this really um, brilliant conversation. I, I really also um, was inspired to think um, a, a number of new thoughts and um, uh, if you want to plug your books, I guess we can do that really quick, and then we should probably get off. Oh, uh, sure. I mean, if you want to read histories of the transgender child, you should. <laughs> um, and if you Google me, you'll find out I'm the only Jules Gil Peterson out there. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, transgender Marxism is out with Pluto Press, edited by me and Ally Rourke. Um, check it out if you'd like. <laughs> And um, I, yeah, I'm always happy to talk with people. And this has been a real pleasure and a delight. So thanks so much to both of you and to Sean for the technical side. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you um, to Haymarket for hosting. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.